examining it all, how the righteous and the wise, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. You guys know what that event is? Okay. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, then madness in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no, re no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So go eat your bread. With joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you will toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going, period. Um, so I'm gonna break this into three sections today with these 10 verses, all right? We're gonna just bring three points out of here that, that Solomon's getting at and then speak to those. The, the first one is this, it's found in verses one through three and, and, and that is life's a bummer and then you die. Life's a bummer and then you die. I know that's not how the bumper sticker goes, but this is a, you know, this is a G-rated church. So um, yeah, life's a bummer and then we die. That's basically verses one through three. Um, statistically, and I don't, I don't like statistics anymore a lot of the time because you'll find, you know, depending on which website you go to, you'll get different stats. But I think this one's pretty close. Statistically, one out of every one person will die. We cool with that? <laughs> We're good with that? So that, that's a pretty safe statistic. Um, unless like your name is Enoch or Elijah, then there's like an exception, but pr pretty much um, one out of every one person is gonna die. And if there's a harsh truth that can't be undone, fixed, corrected in life, um, it's death. It's the reality of death. It's the reality of our mortality uh, that we all have an expiration date. In fact, that came up a few times this morning as uh, we were praying and talking and considering people that we love um, is that it, it's, um, it, it's a bummer to know that we all have a shelf life with this life, with this body, right? So this is actually a pretty good Halloween message. Um, death is a, is, is a predator that will track us down. We cannot outrun it. No matter how much kale you eat, you cannot outrun death. No matter how many medicines or vaccines you take, you cannot outrun it. No matter how many diets you try, no matter how many Botox injections you may receive, no matter how many miles you run or bike, no matter how clean the air is that you breathe or how thick the mask is that you wear or how many workout programs you do, we cannot outrun death. None of us cannot escape it. 
It is also true that no matter how good or bad you were in life or are in life, no matter how righteous you are or wicked you are, um, how clean or unclean you are, death is the great equalizer. It doesn't care how good you are or how bad you are. It changes its mind for nobody. And this is ultimately what Solomon is getting at in verses one through three. This, this is the heart, harsh reality or the great evil that he says there in verse three that he observes is that good and bad, wicked and righteous alike, they all get the same thing in the end. So all our human effort is not the ultimate factor in whether we live or die. In fact, effort in the end has very little uh, to do with it. We have super fit people that have hearts that give out and they die young. And then we have chain smoking, whiskey drinking, salt loving, grease loving people like my grandma Ruby that live into their hundreds. Hey, what's wrong right? And um, no, she thought nothing was wrong with it, and she lived to 103, so um, there, there's only one thing that is certain in the end for all who live, and it is death. Just like the sun shines on the just and the unjust, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, death is the same way. All right, let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we ought to just end it right there. Uh, <clears throat> Solomon has already shared the outcomes of his failed life experience, uh, experiments concerning the pursuit of purpose and meaning in things that are under the sun, and now he's magnifying their vanity by focusing on how it all ends. So, so we spend our lives grasping at vapor, at things that are vaporous, things that are futile, and, and then our life ends like one, is basically what he's, what he's saying. And what he's really doing here is he's keying in on how the knowledge of that reality of death can make what we're doing now even more meaningless than it already is. So he's actually like kicking it down to another level of depression. <laughs> if, if, if the end of our lives is empty, then the means or the road there is even more so. So, so life's a bummer, then we die. He, he makes this depressing truth known in verse three that it is an evil that whether you're good or bad, righteous, wicked, clean or unclean, no matter how you live, the same event happens to all. That's the great evil of it all. And this is the bad news that mankind has to grapple with, isn't it? This is the bad news. This is why karma or your religious attempts cannot help you. And, and, I, and I think a lot of people ask themselves, why is it this way at some point in their life? Why is death a thing? Why does death exist? The Bible would say, Romans 3.23, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, so what? What does that mean? Well, it means, according to Romans 6.23, that the wages or the penalty of that sin is death. That's why death exists. That's the bad news, is that we sin, and because we sin and we owe payment for that sin, which is death, all die. And because the payment, that which we owe for our sin, it is appointed for all men to die due to sin and in the judgment of our sin. This is Hebrews 9.27. This is the bad news. And what's interesting about this is that the Bible actually tells us why death exists. You ever thought about that? The Bible actually tells us why death exists. Um, 
that the Bible actually has the nerve to give us a clear, um, articulated, confident explanation as to why we die is very compelling, very interesting. But, but whether you believe it or not, whether you receive what the Bible has to say about it or not, death itself cannot be denied. It cannot be escaped. And this is what Solomon is saying. Apart from God, life's a bummer. Then we die. Which brings us to the second uh, point here, which is basically found in verses four through six. Living has a slight advantage over dying. Living has a slight advantage over dying. So, so since this is a bummer, life, and since this is a bummer, um, death, uh, which one's the better bummer? Like if I had to pick between the two, which one would be better? And um, for the one that's living under the sun, um, living has a slight edge over uh, dying. After all, a living dog is better than a dead lion, right? And you're all like, of course. And then you're like, what the heck is that? Like, no, I don't know what that means, okay? It sounds like some kind of something you'd pull out of a fortune cookie. Um, it's a proverb, okay? And it doesn't make a lot of sense to us because in our culture, in our day and age, um, the dog is a man's best friend, right? Like we esteem dogs and worship dogs and elevate dogs to a level that actually we shouldn't, but we do today, right? If you went back to that culture, that's not what, a dog was not man's best friend. A dog was a bottom feeder, a scavenger. It was like one of the lowest levels of creature that there was. They were, they were looked down upon in a big way. They would just run around and feed on the carcasses and the trash that would go outside the city. And so back in that day, like even in the Bible, when you see someone called a dog, like that was as bad as it got. If you called somebody a dog, you were calling them the lowest level of existence, basically. But the lion, on the other hand, the lion was everything in that culture back there. There, there, was, there was reverence for the lion. There was actually worship of the lion. Uh, it was majestic. It was powerful. It was, it was the opposite of the dog. It was one of the greatest creatures that existed, right? And so now that we understand what their mind was uh, about these things, it actually makes a little more sense. In other words, what Solomon's saying is even the most pitied, despicable creature, at least he still has hope. That's why a live dog is better than a dead lion, is the dead lion now ceases to exist in any way. But at least that dog still might have another scrap of food that it can enjoy or another breath that it can take in or another they don't care about sunrises, but we do, right? <clears throat> and so in terms of human beings, <clears throat> this, is, this is what Solomon is saying. At least there's still something for the one who's alive, even if they're the lowest level of life. The hope for the living, though it is vain, may be that they have another day, may be that they have another sunset, that they have another laugh, that they have another pleasurable experience. At least they have that. But the dead, none of the above will they have ever again. No chance to leave their mark on the world any longer, forgotten, verse five, okay? No chance to love or be loved any longer, verse six. All they have left now is to cease to exist and it is at this point that I think that it should be mentioned or pointed out or some attention given to um, 
the fact that this description of death that Solomon is using here <clears throat> is not meant to be accurate, an accurate depiction of what death is actually like, but he's playing along with the world's perception of what death is. You guys understand what I'm saying? He's playing along with the world's perception of what death is. In other words, he's not teaching us like legitimately deep and accurate theology about death, okay? He's kind of playing along with the foolishness of the world and their, out, their outlook on it. So, and, and what that is with the world is basically just an unconscious state. It's that you cease to exist. It's like nothingness. You go from somethingness to nothingness. It's like soul sleep even, which some religions will even buy into and teach. And it sounds good, you know what I mean? You just get a blankie and just curl up for an eternal nap. Like that's, that sounds pretty awesome, you know? Um, the rest of our Bibles clearly inform us that this is not the case. We do not just cease to exist. We do not become unconscious. We are actually very conscious, maybe even more conscious about what's going on around us than we are right now. Um, we see this in places like Lazarus and the rich man, where Jesus teaches us about what the afterlife looks like, right? Where there's this chasm between the two. And one is in great pain, and he's extremely, maybe too aware of his predicament and what he's feeling and what he's going through, right? Um, and, and this is why hell should terrify people, um, is because it's real, it's conscious, and it's eternal. We don't just fall asleep. This sounds good, though, right? Like, this makes things better now to think, um, oh, we just go from existing to ceasing to exist. No. And Solomon's point isn't, yeah, that's good theology, is that when you die, you just take a nap. No, he's not doing that. He's playing along with the foolishness of the thinking of the world when it comes to death, okay? And, and, and if it is consciousness and unconsciousness, he's saying, yeah, life has a little bit of an edge. It's, it's a little bit better than that is over there. Number three, and I know we're moving through this quick, but you can go back and look at these. It's pretty, pretty simple when you look at these, what, what Solomon's point is. Um, verses seven through 10, live well while you die. That's number three. Live well while you die. Uh, since this is all that we have, we might as well make the most of it. Solomon's encouraging us to, to live all out and to enjoy it because we don't have a lot of time. And some of you are like, I think that's right. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's right or not, right? And, and some of you are like, yeah, I can get behind that one. Like, that, that's good. And in a way, it, it is actually good thinking. But, but maybe not in the way that the world thinks it or the ungodly sees it. Um, because the world would mean it to get what they can, while they can, however they can, because it's all about them right now. This is, this is me time right now. Death is coming, the window's closing, I need to do what I can for me right now. In fact, we see uh, Paul talk about this um, in light of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 15, right? The resurrection chapter where he's saying, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if we just cease to exist and there's nothing going on after we die, we should eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're dying. In other words, this is me time. 
We need to get busy living right now. It's like Shawshank Redemption, right? Like get busy dying or get busy living. I forget how he said it, but it was something like that, right? So the world's crying. This is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. The name of the game for the one apart from God, the goal is to gratify the most important object, which is self, by feeding it other life objects, okay? And it doesn't just have to be like the ones that we always think about like sex or drugs or, you know, rock and roll, like gambling, like we think of the big ones, like the, the objects that we can feed ourselves could be things like our children, All right? We can make an idol out of that or our reputation or our career and our accomplishments, what, what we've done, Right? There's so, many, there's so many ways that we can approach this and feed ourselves, even with things that seem okay, even with things that seem good. The game is, what can this thing, whatever it is, do for me? What can this do for me? So it's all about self-satisfaction. Anybody here ever heard of hedonism? Hedonism. Um, hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. The pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. Even more than that, hedonism is a desire to increase pleasure so as to decrease pain. You increase pleasure so as to decrease pain. In other words, it's basically um, a lifestyle of self-medicating is what it is. And there is no greater reason to give your life over to and practice hedonism than in light of the coming inevitability of death. That's a very good reason to self-medicate and to get going on feeding the flesh and getting what you can while you can. And for the man who lives apart from God and therefore has his hope only in today, only in now, and that which is under the sun, this is right thinking. Hedonism is right thinking. That's exactly what you should be doing if that's all it is. This is his best option. If it's all vanity and death is inevitable, it would be stupid not to make the most of it right now for yourself. Like stupid. To live your, as Mr. Olstein says, best life now, right? That's hedonism. But there's another type of hedonism as well. Any John Piper fans here? One, one that will admit it. He coined, okay, well, I don't, I, I remember Blanche. Um, she has nothing to do with this, but yeah, I totally, I totally remember. Um, there's another type of hedonism that John Piper coined years ago. He wrote a book on it, and it's called Christian Hedonism. Christian Hedonism. Christian Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, delight, and satisfaction in the gift giver. So the father of lights, the one that's above the sun rather than the object or the gift that's below the sun. Okay? So for the child of God, the good things that we enjoy in this life are not primarily due to the object or the pleasure or the experience itself, but due to the one who gave it to us, who makes it possible to have. In other words, for the pleasure seeker, apart from God, the joy of that which is experienced in life terminates on that thing. It's done there, okay? But for the God seeker, the joy of that which is experienced terminates on him. You see the difference? 
One terminates on the object or the moment or the experience, so it's gone when it's gone. But for the Christian, our joy in the gift and the pleasures of life are because of, they, they reflect back onto and terminate onto the one who gave the gift. Therefore, there is no termination. One is idolatry. I think you see that clearly. Empty, vain. One is worship. Transcendent, eternal. That's how big of a difference it is. And this is good for us to think these things out sometimes because I think we're just firing on all cylinders sometimes and we got joy and, and pleasure and things going on and, and sometimes I don't, I don't think we parse or, or sit down and really consider um, what that thing is in relation to us. And I think it, it makes such a difference when we start knowing that the, the gift giver is transcendent over any and everything that you and I enjoy in this life. All of it. It's only possible, present, existent, experienced because he gave it to us. The starting point, the author, the gift giver. See, the gifts become far more enjoyable once we know or once we are mindful of who it is giving the gift, right? Far more meaningful, far more valuable because of the one who gave them to us. This is why secret Santa sucks, is because it's a secret. Like, I wanna I want know, like, who gave me that thing? I wanna know the, the, the heart behind that gift, the person I, uh, that, that, that gave the gesture, that gave the blessing, that the sacrifice originated out of, the gift originated out of and was made possible by. When the gift has no known giver, the only value and worth that exists is in the gift itself. And it may very well be one that we like. I get gifts that I like all the time, right? But the only value and worth that can possibly exist at that point can only exist in the, in the gift itself, if that's all it is. It terminates there. But when I know who that person is behind the gift, it adds worth to the gift, far beyond the gift itself, because of its relational value. Every year we have Pastor Appreciation Month. And by the way, for your information, I think it's next month. So we don't care. But every year, we get these gifts and these cards that pile up on our desk in the pastor's office. And we open those up, and, and sometimes there's, there's money, and sometimes there's like uh, gift cards to like restaurants and stuff, and just really nice things, really nice things written in these cards. And half the time, these cards are not signed by anybody. And it drives us nuts. It drives us nuts that people thought of us and went out of the way to do this kind thing. But we, like, at that point, we don't care about what's inside the card. All we care about is who was behind the card, who was behind the gift. It matters. It changes things. You know? and, and again, I'm not, you know, we do like money better than gift cards, but... Um, <laughs> Not, not, not hitting at all. It matters. It matters to know who's behind the gift. It makes a huge difference in the gift itself. So my, my, my enjoyment doesn't terminate with the gift when somebody gives us one of those cards with something in it. It stretches beyond that, the existence of, of the gift and the pleasure to the one who gifted me with it. 
And you can see the difference. Hedonism pursues the gifts for its own end. Christian hedonism enjoys the gifts because God's its origin and end. And the reason it's important for us to understand this is not only because we can tend towards sin in idolatry, which you and I still do. You and I are really good at worshiping the thing rather than the one that made the thing. This is one of our are problems that we will struggle with and fight with and wrestle with until the day that the Lord takes us home is the golden calves in our life and our ability to make more of them every single day, all right? So, so that's not the only challenge, but we also as Christians can have a challenge uh, lean towards the sin of denying God of his goodness in what he's given us to enjoy. Some of you are like, well, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Let me help you. How many of you have felt at any time or have been taught to feel guilty when you find yourself enjoying something? Right? Just me and Ashley. I, I grew up feeling this, experiencing this in the church, and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily what they were teaching, I think, from the pulpit completely, but maybe even more what they weren't teaching. I think I only ever heard one thing. And my parents were, weren't really like this either. I mean, they weren't materialistic in a lot of ways, but they also weren't into like, you know, cut your skin for Jesus and live in poverty. You know what I mean? So, so we, have, we have these two challenges that are not only in the church, but inside each of us. One is a prosperity gospel where Jesus only wants us to be healthy, wealthy, wise. But the other one is also the, um, um, the poverty gospel, which, which a lot of Christian groups also promote and teach. I don't know if you've ever had those guys. We've had them, and I'm not talking about Mormons, guys that have come to the door with nothing but the clothes on their back and bikes. We've, we've sat under a couple guys that were our pastors for a while that were taught that they had to, if, if they were going to do anything significant for God as Christians in ministry in their life, that they had to leave their homes as young men with no car, with no bike, with no money, and just see where God takes you, figure out how to survive and minister for, like, like their stories were ridiculous, we can, we can fall into a prosperity gospel, but we can also fall into a poverty gospel. And I do that, I do this a lot, where I, I, I I'm, it's funny because I'm extremely um, um, materialistic in ways, if I'm just to be honest with you guys in ways, but then there's that other, there's that other side of me, it's completely bipolar, where then when I, when I get something that's good or something good happens to me or something good is done for me, I feel completely guilty like I'm doing something wrong. Oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to enjoy this. I'm not supposed to receive this. And it's not true and we can, we can fall into that. And the reason I bring that up is because this is a horrible way to live for us as Christians. To not know how to take pleasure in and enjoy the things that God's given us on earth. So there's two extremes. And the reason it's a horrible thing is because at that point, we're denying God of his glory. He's given us a gift. He should receive glory back for that. But what happens when he gives us a gift and we don't not only see him as the gift giver or as the, the, the one who authored that gift or gave it, but we deny, we reject the gift, right? I, I 
with that understanding, like I said, that um, to be a Christian, you had to be miserable, you had to not have fun, you couldn't like good music, um, you couldn't derive any pleasure in life. And I just didn't understand anything different than that. And that the, 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 the times that I lived that way as a Christian, and I can still fall into that mindset sometimes, I'm actually walking in sin towards God because I'm denying him of the glory that he deserves as the gift giver of things that he actually wants me and intends for me to enjoy. We can enjoy things now. God wants us to enjoy things now. He's given us things to enjoy. What does it mean that God has already approved of what you do in verse seven? What does that mean? He says there, go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. It means that God is the one who gave us those things. Therefore, he approves of them. That's what it means. Therefore, they're not bad, they're good. Our, our, our problem is not that we can't take pleasure in things, it's that we like to take pleasure in things that are bad. Okay? That's where the real challenge comes. And, and so we can equate self-denial with no pleasure at all. And, and Solomon's saying, no, there, there is no sin in these things because God gave them to us to enjoy. Not to worship, but to enjoy. Okay? So food is a blessing, not an idol. Okay? And, and gluttony or sinfulness towards food has nothing to do with the size of your waistline has to do with what's going on in here and how you approach and look at food, right? Again, this is our problem. It's not the objects around us, the gifts around us. The problem fundamentally lies here and how we approach those things that God has given us, right? Food is a blessing, not an idol. Drink can be a blessing, not for everybody, but for some without being an idol. Clean clothes. He says here in, in, in eight, let your garments always be white. I don't think he's going from like spiritual, like, like material objects, life objects, and all of a sudden going to a spiritual one. Yes, a lot of times white garments in, in scripture will refer to purity, right? I just think he's talking about clean duds right here, like some clean clothes, like it's okay to have some nice clothes or some clean clothes. And then he follows it up with, it's okay to have some nice perfume. It's, nice, it's okay to have a hot shower. To, to get clean, put on clean clothes, and then put something that smells good on. That's okay. They're a blessing, not an idol. Your spouse is a blessing, not an idol. Your kids are a blessing, not an idol. This is a hard one for a lot of people. We have, we have kids and they become everything, even for Christians, in ways that they shouldn't be and we can get in trouble that way. Kids are, are one of the greatest blessings we have, but they are not our God. They are a blessing, not an idol. If you're single here today, your singleness is a blessing, not an idol. Don't use your freedom. The things that you're able to do, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, as a result of not being married, don't make that an idol, it's a blessing. The work of your hands, your job, your hobbies, your accomplishments, they're a blessing, not an idol. All the things mentioned in seven through nine, blessing, not an idol. See, when we acknowledge the gift giver in 
These life things, they are truly gifts and we can enjoy them as such. But when we fail to look at him with these gifts, it becomes all about the gift itself and idols are made. On the other hand, this is where we must keep ourselves in check with the freedom and the right to enjoy that which God's given us through thanksgiving to him. Because in our sinfulness, we can start justifying all kinds of things that aren't God things at all. Anybody do that one? But, he, but he's the gift giver. So like we do this thing we shouldn't be doing and we're like, thank you, Jesus. Like we, tr- we try to p- play through it that way. Anybody? We can convince ourselves about anything if we want it bad enough and we will be willing to twist the scriptures to do it. I don't know of any other verse that I've heard stripped out of its context to justify sinful behavior by Christians more than 1 Timothy 4.4. Does anybody know this verse? 1 Timothy 4.4. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I've heard that over and over again, not just from uh, congregants that I'm working with and trying to work through things with, but by my kids. (laughs) I think my kids used this one more than like anything else when they were growing up, right? And so we have a verse that says, as long as it's done in Thanksgiving, it doesn't matter what it is, it's it's clean, it's pure. (laughs) It's not true. The Bible clearly tells us the things that are of God and how they're intended by God and the things that are not of God and that are intended out of a wicked heart. Like it parses those things for us, right? So we can't come to a verse like this and be like, thank you, Lord, for providing a house for me and my girlfriend to shack up in. You're so awesome. No, he doesn't, no, right? Thank you, Lord, for this huge stinking blunt that I'm about to smoke and just get blasted out of my mind with. Thank you, you know what I mean? No. No. It's all about how God has intended those things and then how we approach those things, right? And in our sinfulness, we need to be careful what we're justifying in our lives. And again, this is something that that I think I'm constantly doing, if I think about it. It's something that's always, my heart's always churning this way. It's always manufacturing ways to um, validate um, something that I really want for me. And I need to be aware that that's going on inside of me. And I need to be aware of what it looks like, which means I need to be more in the word of God. I need to be more in tune with his mind and his thinking and his truth so I don't buy the garbage. So I don't buy, you know, so I don't enter any houses while I'm walking through that bad neighborhood, you know? So it's another thing we can do. Here's a helpful question to ask. When I pray, is this pleasure, this thing I'm, a, I'm going to do or about to do, something I would feel good about thanking God for, or would I be embarrassed to mention it to him? I mean, something that simple and silly can be helpful as we approach something or as we go into something before we go into it. We can keep, um, when we can keep in step with him, pleasing him, enjoying him, we will rightfully enjoy that which is from him the way that he intends it. This is Christian hedonism. Do you guys realize that everything that you, how many of you enjoy many things in life on a daily basis? Do you realize that those things that you enjoy in life on a daily basis are just a shadow of who he is? They're just a shadow of who he is. That's amazing to think about. 
Think about this, your, your marriage, your kids, the good food, the drink, the accomplishments, the sex, the laughter, all the things that we take pleasure in are just a shadow of who he is and what he has in store for us. A shadow. Every pleasure we enjoy now is a shadow of the ultimate reality of what will be. Even God's shadows are good. That's the amazing part. Even his shadows are good. Even his shadows are pleasurable. Even his shadows are enjoyable. C.S. Lewis said, we live in the shadow lands. That's what he meant by that when he said it. We live enjoying the shadows because of the shadow caster. Of course, in verse 10 here, he, um, he says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's pray. <laughs> I don't know why I keep doing that, but it just seems right. <laughs> what a great note to end on. Sheol is just the grave. It's the grave, okay? And I know this is a big study and there's some different, what's up, Gordon? There's some different variations with this. Um, but Sheol, basically at that time, if you died, it didn't matter if you were uh, the seed of Abraham or you were just one of your run-of-the-mill pagans, okay? Godless or godly, everybody went to the same place, the grave. That's all Sheol is. It's the grave. And I mentioned earlier, I think, a reference back to um, Lazarus and the rich man, that example that Jesus gave. We see something very interesting in that, that story, which is that they're both in the same place and yet different places, okay? So the rich man and Lazarus are, are both in the place of the grave, okay? But there's a chasm separating them and they're experiencing two completely different things. And this is, this is how it's, it's largely believed when you look at pre-Jesus, pre-resurrection. What happened to the believer? Well, the believer went to the grave too. He didn't go into the presence of God because there was no access point yet. Jesus hasn't, hadn't created a way yet for the righteous who live by faith in him to be in the presence of God. So where did they go? They went to what we would refer to maybe as like a holding tank in Sheol, in the grave. And the wicked, the people who had nothing to do with God, who weren't looking forward to Christ by faith, they went there too, just to a different compartment. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So it's weird to think about, but everybody pre-resurrection, I should even say pre-ascension, um, went to the grave. Everybody. And so he's just making that statement here that everybody goes to the grave. And um, I don't know about you, but when I read a verse like this, um, I wonder if you're saying the same thing to yourself as I'm saying to myself. How significant is it that Jesus came? Right? I mean, look at it. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going, period. That's a pretty bleak statement. That's a pretty bad way to end a section. And I think to myself, how significant is it that Jesus came? How significant is the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ as a result of this truth? 
so significant that you and I can read what Solomon put down this morning and say, not for me. Not for me. Thank you, but no thank you. I'll pass because I'm headed for the promised land. I'm headed for the promised land. I'm not headed for the grave. My body might be if I die before Jesus comes back, but I won't be. I will not be found there. That will not be my dwelling place. I'm headed for the promised land. See, Solomon says, like we looked at today, life's a bummer and then we die. But the gospel says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Solomon says, life may have a slight advantage over dying, but the gospel says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Solomon may say, live hard and fast because this is all there is. So get what you can while you can, but the gospel says to live as Christ, to die as gain. See, the, the best is yet to come for us who are in Christ. The best is yet to come. It hasn't come yet. For the one who has no hope beyond this life, this is the best that it gets for him. It doesn't get any better than this. This is as good as it will ever get for the godless person. But for you and I who know him, this is the worst it'll ever get. It will never get worse than it is now. You and I will never experience something worse than what we experience now in this life. And how bad is it? Because we still have his shadows that he casts every single day that we enjoy. But it's only going to get better for us. It's only going to get better for us. Do you believe this, I guess, is my question. Do you believe this? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I have no doubt that this is true. Remember this as you watch the headlines every day. Remember this right now as you watch the headlines every day. Remember this as you watch people that you love suffer and get sick and die. Remember this as you pass through trials and hardships and agonizing pain and depression and doubt and uncertainty and loneliness and sorrow on and on and on and on. Remember this. This is bad as it gets for you, Christian. The resurrection is certain. This is as bad as it gets for you and me because the tomb is empty. That's what's so awesome about the gospel. That's what's so awesome about what Christ came and accomplished is that we don't have to have a text like this and think that that's all that it is because it's not. There's the rest of the story. And that's that the sinless one came. The all-wise one came and lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death and walked away from the tomb, vacated it, and then ascended to the right hand of God where he is right now, advocating on our behalf. All those who have faith in him. His righteousness is now imputed and applied to us. Our sin went to him, his righteousness goes to us. And because of that, this is as bad as it gets for you and I. We do not go to the grave. We do not spend an eternity in unconsciousness. We spend an eternity face to face, not with the shadow, but with the shadow caster. We will actually see him fully, know him fully. That's a pretty incredible thing to think about. We are enjoying so many things right now in life due to the shadows that he's cast of his goodness. One day you and I are going to see not a shadow, but him. How good will that be? 
How enjoyable will that be? How amazing will that be? And on top of it, we'll be without sin. Like, we'll, we'll actually, like, be able to fully understand it and enjoy it. Because we'll be clean. It's an amazing thing to think about. The, isn't this why we do what we do as a church? Isn't this why we exist? I mean, think about this. It's because death exists. <laughs> you and I have something to tell the world that they need to hear because death exists. It's real. And it's coming for everybody. Nobody can escape it. And you and I have a solution, an answer for death. And that is life. We will go on to life. Our best life isn't now. Our best life is yet to come. It's yet to come because of what Christ did. And all who believe on him get to receive that which he's accomplished on their behalf. We've got to tell people about that. We've got to plead with people. You know what I'm saying? We've got to implore people to come to Christ and to know him by faith so that they may live and not die. And not die. I have one quote. I'll just end with this. I love this dude's quote. I have it up on my board in my office. Um, years ago, I saw this, and I, it, just, it just hit me. I was just like, dang. Like, this is hardcore perspective. Like, I need to remember this every day. It's a, it's a guy named Robert Murray. He says, do you mourn over your bodily pain? Do you mourn over your poverty and your sickness and the troubles of the world? He says, do not murmur, for the time is short. If you have believed in Christ, these are all the hell that you will ever bear. Think about that. Whatever it is that you're dealing with right now and going through, or will go through, it is all the hell that you will ever bear, Christian. Lord, thank you for um, punching a hole through the sky, for bringing sinners to the righteous one. Thank you, Lord, for vacating the tomb. Thank you, Lord, that, um, that you are trustworthy, that everything you've said and promised to those who love you and look to you for their salvation, um, we can take to the bank. It's trustworthy. You keep your promises, every single one of them. And because of that, we know by your work that we will not taste death, that we will not see death, that these bodies will die, but we will not. And not only that, that you're going to, that you're going to raise them up on that last day, that you're actually going to glorify those too, that you're going to redeem and renew those too. And we will be married once again together with those bodies forever. It's just it's just incredible, Lord, to think about it. And it almost, I know why, how it can just sound ridiculous to a lost and dying world, but not to me. I just, I just believe it. It's true. And I pray that everyone in here today believes that it is fully and completely true. And so we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, to bring us through each day, enjoying life the way that it was intended by you to enjoy and giving you credit for every bit of that enjoyment. I pray that we wouldn't rob you of any glory, Lord, that's due to your name. 
but that we would just find more and more sweet fellowship and worship with you as we enjoy the things that come from you. And so teach us to do that, Lord. Give us clear minds, sound minds, to know what's true, to know what's of you. And we thank you once again for this morning, God. We thank you for the way that you meet us, that you're never too busy of a father to sit down with your kids, but you're always fully attentive, fully ministering. And so we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.